0: Chapter twenty seven, part one of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter twenty seven. Grandmother Stark. Part one. Except for its chair and bed, the cabin was stripped almost bare. Amid its emptiness of dismantled shelves and walls and floor, only the tiny ancestress still hung in her place last token of the home that had been. This miniature, tacked against the despoiled boards, and its descendant, the angry girl with her hand on an open box-lid, made a sort of couple in the loneliness. She on the wall, sweet and serene, she by the box, sweet and stormy. The picture was her final treasure waiting to be packed for the journey. In whatever room she had called her own since childhood, There it had also lived and looked at her, not quite familiar, not quite smiling, but in its prim colonial hues, delicate as some pressed flower. Its pale oval, of color blue and rose and flaxen, in a battered pretty gold frame, unconquerably pervaded any surroundings with a something like last year's lavender. Till yesterday a Crow-Indian war bonnet had hung next it, a sumptuous cascade of feathers on the other side a bow with arrows had dangled opposite had been the skin of a silver fox over the door had spread the antlers of a black-tailed deer a bearskin stretched beneath it thus had the whole cosy log cabin been upholstered lavish with trophies of the frontier and yet it was in front of the miniature that the visitors used to stop SHINING QUIETLY NOW IN THE CABIN'S BLACKNESS THIS SUMMER DAY, THE HEIRLOOM WAS PRESIDING UNTIL THE END, AND AS MOLLY WOOD'S EYES FELL UPON HER ANCESTRESS OF BENNINGTON, 1777, THERE FLASHED A SPARK OF STEEL IN THEM, ALONE HERE IN THE ROOM THAT SHE WAS LEAVING FOREVER. SHE WAS NOT GOING TO TEACH SCHOOL any more ON BEAR CREEK, WYOMING. SHE WAS GOING HOME TO BENNINGTON, VERMONT. WHEN TIME CAME FOR SCHOOL TO OPEN AGAIN, THERE SHOULD BE A NEW SCHOOLMARM. THIS WAS THE MOMENTOUS RESULT OF THAT VISIT WHICH THE VIRGINIAN HAD PAID HER. HE HAD TOLD HER THAT HE WAS COMING FOR HIS HOUR SOON. FROM THAT HOUR SHE HAD DECIDED TO ESCAPE. SHE WAS RUNNING AWAY FROM HER OWN HEART. SHE DID NOT DARE TO TRUST HERSELF FACE TO FACE AGAIN WITH HER POTENT, indomitable LOVER. SHE LONGED FOR HIM and therefore she would never see him again. No great aunt at Dunbarton, or anybody else that knew her and her family, should ever say that she had married below her station, had been an unworthy Stark. Accordingly she had written to the Virginian, bidding him good-bye and wishing him everything in the world. As she happened to be aware that she was taking everything in the world away from him, this letter was not the most easy of letters to write. But she had made the language very kind—yes, it was a thoroughly kind communication. And all because of that momentary visit when he had brought back to her two novels, Emma and Pride and Prejudice. "'How do you like them?' she had then inquired, and he had smiled slowly at her. "'You haven't read them!' she exclaimed. "'No.' "'Are you going to tell me there has been no time?' "No." Then Molly had scolded her cow-puncher, and to this he had listened with pleasure undisguised, as, indeed, he listened to every word that she said. "'Why, it has come too late,' he had told her, when the scolding was over. "'If I was one of your little scholars here in Bear Creek Schoolhouse, you could learn me to like such frillery, I reckon. But I'm a mighty ignorant, growed-up man.' "'So much the worse for you,' said Molly.' no i am pretty glad i am a man else i could not have learned the thing you have taught me but she shut her lips and looked away on the desk was a letter written from vermont if you don't tell me at once when you decide had said the arch-writer never hope to speak to me again mary would seriously i am suspicious why do you never mention him nowadays how exciting to have you bring a live cowboy to bennington we should all come to dinner. Though, of course, I understand now that many of them have excellent manners. But would he wear his pistol at table?" So the letter ran on. It recounted the latest home gossip and jokes. In answering it, Molly Wood had taken no notice of its childish tone here and there. has some of them cactus blossoms you wanted,' said the Virginian. His voice recalled the girl with almost a start. I've brought a good hoss I've gentled for you, and Taylor'll keep him till I need him. Thank you so much, but I wish— I reckon you can't stop me lendin' Taylor a hoss, and you certainly'll get sick school-teaching if you don't keep outdoors some. Good-bye, till that next time. Yes, there's always a next time, she answered as lightly as she could. There always will be, don't you know that? She did not reply. "'I have discouraged spells,' he pursued. "'But I down them. "'For I've told you you were going to love me. "'You are going to learn back the thing you have taught me. "'I'm not asking anything now. "'I don't want you to speak a word to me. "'But I'm never going to quit till next time is no more, "'and it's all the time for you and me.' With that he had ridden away, not even touching her hand. Long after he had gone she was still in her chair, her eyes lingering upon his flowers, those yellow cups of the prickly pear. At length she had risen impatiently, caught up the flowers, gone with them to the open window, and then, after all, set them with pains in water. But to-day Bear Creek was over. She was going home now. By the week's end she would be started. By the time the mail brought him her good-bye letter she would be gone. She had acted. To Bear Creek, the neighborly, the friendly, the not comprehending, this move had come unlooked for, and had brought regret. Only one hard word had been spoken to Molly, and that by her next-door neighbor and kindest friend. In Mrs. Taylor's house the girl had daily come and gone as a daughter. And that lady reached the subject thus. "'When I took Taylor,' said she, sitting by as Robert Browning and Jane Austen were going into their box, "'I married for love.' "'Do you wish it had been money?' said Molly, stooping to her industries. "'You know both of us better than that, child.' "'I know I've seen people at home who couldn't possibly have had any other reason. They seem satisfied, too.' "'Maybe the poor ignorant things were. "'And so I have never been sure how I might choose. "'Yes, you are sure, dearie. "'Don't you think I know you? "'And when it comes over Taylor once in a while, "'and he tells me I'm the best thing in his life, "'and I tell him he ain't merely the best thing "'but the only thing in mine, him and the children, "'why, we just agree we'd do it all over the same way "'if we had the chance.' "'Molly continued to be industrious.' "'And that's why,' said Mrs. Taylor, "'I want every girl that's anything to me to know her luck when it comes, "'for I was that near tellin' Taylor I wouldn't.' "'If ever my luck comes,' said Molly, with her back to her friend, "'I shall say I will at once.' "'Then you'll say it at Bennington next week.' Molly wheeled round. "'Why, you surely will. "'Do you expect he's going to stay here, and you, in Bennington?' And the campaigner sat back in her chair. He? Goodness! Who is he? Child, child, you're talking cross today because you're at outs with yourself. You've been at outs ever since you took this idea of leaving the school and us and everything this needless way. You have not treated him right. And why, I can't make out to save me. What if you found out all of a sudden? If he was not good enough for you, I—but— Oh, it's a prime one you're losing, Molly. When a man like that stays faithful to a girl, spite all the chances he gets, her luck has come. Oh, my luck! People have different notions of luck. Notions? He has been very kind. Kind? And now, without further simmering, Mrs. Taylor's wrath boiled up and poured copiously over Molly Wood. Kind? Kind? There's a word you shouldn't use, my dear. No doubt you can spell it. But more than it's spelling, I guess you don't know. The children can learn what it means from some of the rest of us folks that don't spell so correct, maybe. Mrs. Taylor, Mrs. Taylor. I can't wait, dearie. Since the roughness looks bigger to you than the diamond, you had better go back to Vermont. I expect you'll find better grammar there, dearie. The good dame stalked out and across to her own cabin, and left the angry girl among her boxes. It was in vain she fell to work upon them. Presently something had to be done over again, and when it was the box held several chattels less than before the readjustment. She played a sort of desperate dominoes to fit these objects in the space, but here were a paperweight, a portfolio, with two wretched volumes that no chink would harbour, and letting them fall all at once she straightened herself, still stormy with revolt, eyes and cheeks still hot from the sting of long-parried truth. There, on her wall still, was the miniature, the little silent ancestress, and upon this face the girl's glance rested. It was as if she appealed to Grandmother Stark for support and comfort across the hundred years which lay between them. So the flaxen girl on the wall, and she among the boxes, stood a moment face to face in seeming communion, and then the descendant turned again to her work. But after a desultory touch here and there, she drew a long breath and walked to the open door. What use was in finishing to-day, when she had nearly a week? This first spurt of toil had swept the cabin bare of all indwelling charm, and its look was chill. Across the lane his horse, the one he had gentled for her, was grazing idly. She walked there and caught him, and led him to her gate. Mrs. Taylor saw her go in, and soon come out in riding dress, and she watched the girl throw the saddle on with quick ease, the ease he had taught her. Mrs. Taylor also saw the sharp cut she gave the horse, and laughed grimly to herself in her window, as horse and rider galloped into the beautiful sunny loneliness. To the punished animal this switching was new, and at its third repetition he turned his head in surprise, but was no more heated than were the bluffs and flowers where he was taking his own undirected choice of way. He carried her over ground she knew by heart-Corncliff Mesa, Crowheart Butte, West Falls Crossing, Upper Canyon, open land and woodland, pines and sagebrush, all silent and grave and lustrous in the sunshine. Once and again a ranchman greeted her and wondered if she had forgotten who he was. Once she passed some cowpunchers with a small herd of steers, and they stared after her too. Bear Creek narrowed, its mountain sides drew near, its little falls began to rush white in midday shadow, and the horse suddenly pricked his ears. Unguided he was taking this advantage to go home. Though he had made but little way, a mere beginning yet, on this trail over to Sunk Creek, here was already a Sunk Creek friend whinnying good day to him. So he whinnied back and quickened his pace, and Molly started to life. What was Monty doing here? She saw the black horse she knew also, saddled, with reins dragging on the trail as the rider had dropped them to dismount. A cold spring bubbled out beyond the next rock, and she knew her lover's horse was waiting for him while he drank. She pulled at the reins, but loosed them, for to turn and escape now was ridiculous and, riding boldly round the rock, she came upon him by the spring. One of his arms hung up to its elbow in the pool, the other was crooked beside his head, but the face was sunk downward against the shelving rock, so that she saw only his black tangled hair. As her horse snorted and tossed his head, she looked swiftly at Monty, as if to question him. Seeing now the sweat matted on his coat, and noting the white rim of his eye, she sprang and ran to the motionless figure. A patch of blood at his shoulder, behind, stained the soft flannel shirt, spreading down beneath his belt, and the man's whole strong body lay slack and pitifully helpless. She touched the hand beside his head, but it seemed neither warm nor cold to her she felt for the pulse as nearly as she could remember the doctors did but could not tell whether she imagined or not that it was still twice with painful care her fingers sought and waited for the beat and her face seemed like one of listening she leaned down and lifted his other arm and hand from the water and as their ice-coldness reached her senses clearly she saw the patch near the shoulder she had moved grow wet with new blood, and at that sight she grasped at the stones upon which she herself now sank. She held tight by two rocks, sitting straight beside him, staring and murmuring aloud, I must not faint, I will not faint, and the standing horses looked at her, pricking their ears. In this cup-like spread of the ravine the sun shone warmly down the tall red cliff was warm the pines were a warm film and filter of green outside the shade across bear creek rose the steep soft open yellow hill warm and high to the blue and bear creek tumbled upon its sun sparkling stones the two horses on the margin trail still looked at the spring and trees where sat the neat flaxen girl so rigid by the slack-prone body in its flannel shirt and leathern chaps. Suddenly her face livened. "'But the blood ran!' she exclaimed, as if to the horses, her companions in this. She moved to him and put her hand in through his shirt against his heart. Next moment she had sprung up and was at his saddle, searching, then swiftly went on to her own and got her small flask and was back beside him. Here was the cold water he had sought, and she put it against his forehead, and drenched the wounded shoulder with it. Three times she tried to move him, so he might lie more easy, but his dead weight was too much, and, desisting, she sat close and raised his head to let it rest against her. Thus she saw the blood that was running from in front of the shoulder also. But she said no more about fainting. SHE TORE STRIPS FROM HER DRESS AND SOAKED THEM, KEEPING THEM COLD AND WET UPON BOTH OPENINGS OF HIS WOUND, AND SHE DREW HER POCKET KNIFE OUT AND CUT HIS SHIRT AWAY FROM THE PLACE. AS SHE CONTINUALLY RINSED AND CLEANED IT, SHE WATCHED HIS eyelashes, LONG AND SOFT AND THICK, BUT THEY DID NOT STIR. AGAIN SHE TRIED THE FLASK, BUT FAILED FROM BEING STILL TOO GENTLE, AND HER SEARCHING EYES FELL UPON ASHES NEAR THE POOL. Still undispersed by the weather lay the small charred ends of a fire he and she had made once here together, to boil coffee and fry trout. She built another fire now, and when the flames were going well, filled her flask-cup from the spring and set it to heat. Meanwhile she returned to nurse his head and wound. Her cold water had stopped the bleeding. Then she poured her brandy in the steaming cup, Anne, made rough by her desperate helplessness, forced some between his lips and teeth. Instantly, almost, she felt the tremble of life creeping back, and as his deep eyes opened upon her she sat still and mute. But the gaze seemed luminous with an unnoting calm, and she wondered if perhaps he could not recognize her. She watched this internal clearness of his vision, SCARCELY DARING TO BREATHE, UNTIL PRESENTLY HE BEGAN TO SPEAK, WITH THE SAME PROFOUND AND CLEAR IMPERSONALITY SOUNDING IN HIS SLOWLY UTTERED WORDS. I THOUGHT THEY HAD FOUND ME. I EXPECTED THEY WERE GOING TO KILL ME. HE STOPPED, AND SHE GAVE HIM MORE OF THE HOT DRINK, WHICH HE TOOK, STILL LYING AND LOOKING AT HER AS IF THE PRESENT DID NOT REACH HIS SENSES. I knew hands were touching me. I reckon I was not dead. I knew about them soon as they began, only I could not interfere. He waited again. It is mighty strange where I have been—no, mighty natural. Then he went back into his reverie, and lay with his eyes still full open upon her where she sat motionless. She began to feel a greater awe in this living presence than when it had been his body with an ice-cold hand, and she quietly spoke his name, venturing scarcely more than a whisper. At this some nearer thing wakened in his look. "But it was you all along," he resumed. "It is you now. You must not stay." Weakness overcame him and his eyes closed. She sat ministering to him, and when he roused again he began anxiously at once, You must not stay; they would get you, too. She glanced at him with a sort of fierceness, then reached for his pistol, in which was nothing but blackened empty cartridges. She threw these out and drew six from his belt, loaded the weapon, and snapped shut its hinge. Please take it, he said, more anxious and more himself. I ain't worth trying to keep. Look at me." "'Are you giving up?' she inquired, trying to put scorn in her tone. Then she seated herself. "'Where is the sense in both of us—you had better save your strength,' she interrupted. He tried to sit up. "'Lie down,' she ordered. He sank obediently and began to smile. When she saw that she smiled too, and unexpectedly took his hand. "'Listen, friend,' said she, "'nobody shall get you and nobody shall get me. Now take some more brandy.' "'It must be noon,' said the cowpuncher, when she had drawn her hand away from him. "'I remember it was dark when—when—when when, when I can remember. I reckon they were scared to follow me in so close to settlers, else they would have been here.' "'You must rest,' she observed." she broke the soft ends of some evergreen, and putting them beneath his head went to the horses, loosened the cinches, took off the bridles, led them to drink, and picketed them to feed. Further still, to leave nothing undone which she could herself manage, she took the horses' saddles off to refold the blankets when the time should come, and meanwhile brought them for him. But he put them away from him he was sitting up against a rock, stronger evidently, and asking for cold water. His head was fire-hot, and the paleness beneath his swarthy skin had changed to a deepening flush. "'Only five miles,' she said to him, bathing his head. "'Yes, I must hold it steady,' he answered, waving his hand at the cliff. She told him to try and keep it steady until they got home. "'Yes,' he repeated, "'only five miles. But it's fightin' to turn around.' Half aware that he was becoming light-headed, he looked from the rock to her and from her to the rock with dilating eyes. "'We can hold it together,' she said. "'You must get on your horse.' She took his handkerchief from round his neck, knotting it with her own, and to make more bandage she ran to the roll of clothes behind his saddle, and tore in halves a clean shirt. A handkerchief fell from it, which she seized also, and opening saw her own initials by the hem. Then she remembered. She saw again their first meeting, the swollen river, the overset stage, the unknown horseman who carried her to the bank on his saddle and went away unthanked, her whole first adventure on that first day of her coming to this new country and now she knew how her long-forgotten handkerchief had gone that day. She refolded it gently and put it back in his bundle, for there was enough bandage without it. She said not a word to him, and he placed a wrong meaning upon the look which she gave him as she returned to bind his shoulder. "'It don't hurt so much,' he assured her, though extreme pain was clearing his head for the moment, and he had been able to hold the cliff from turning.' You must not squander your pity. Do not squander your strength," said she. Oh, I could put up a pretty good fight now. But he tottered in showing her how strong he was, and she told him that, after all, he was a child still. Yes, he slowly said, looking after her as she went to bring his horse. The same child that wanted to touch the moon, I guess and during the slow climb down into the saddle from a rock to which she helped him, he said, You have got to be the man all through this mess. She saw his teeth clenched, and his drooping muscles compelled by will, and as he rode and she walked to lend him support, leading her horse by a backward-stretched left hand, she counted off the distance to him continually. The increasing gain, the lessening road, the landmarks nearing and dropping behind. Here was the tree with the wasp-nest gone. Now the burned cabin was passed. Now the cottonwoods at the ford were in sight. He was silent and held to the saddle-horn, leaning more and more against his two hands clasped over it, and just after they had made the crossing he fell, without a sound slipping to the grass and his descent broken by her. But it started the blood a little, and she dared not leave him to seek help. She gave him the last of the flask and all the water he craved. Revived, he managed to smile. You see, I ain't worth keeping. It's only a mile, said she. So she found a log, a fallen trunk, and he crawled to that, and from there crawled to his saddle, and she marched on with him, talking, bidding him note the steps accomplished. For the next half-mile they went thus, the silent man clinched on the horse, and by his side the girl walking and cheering him forward, when suddenly he began to speak. "'I will say good-bye to you now, ma'am.' She did not understand at first the significance of this. "'He is getting away,' pursued the Virginian. "'I must ask you to excuse me, ma'am.' It was a long while since her lord had addressed her as "'Ma'am.' As she looked at him in growing apprehension, he turned Monty and would have ridden away, but she caught the bridle. "'You must take me home,' said she, with ready inspiration. "'I am afraid of the Indians.' "'Why, you—why, they've all gone.' There he goes. Ma'am, that hoss! No, said she, holding firmly his rein and quickening her step. A gentleman does not invite a lady to go out riding and leave her. His eyes lost their purpose. I'll certainly take you home. That sorrel has gone in there by the wallow, and Judge Henry will understand. With his eyes watching imaginary objects, He rode and rambled, and it was now the girl who was silent, except to keep his mind from its half-fixed idea of the sorrel. As he grew more fluent she hastened still more, listening to head off that notion of return, skillfully inventing questions to engage him, so that when she brought him to her gate she held him in a manner subjected, answering faithfully the shrewd unrealities which she devised whatever makeshifts she could summon to her mind. And next she had got him inside her dwelling, and set him down, docile, but now completely wandering. And then no help was at hand, even here. She had made sure of aid from next door, and there she hastened to find the tailor's cabin locked and silent. And this meant that parents and children were gone to drive nor might she be luckier at her next nearest neighbors, should she travel the intervening mile to fetch them. With a mind jostled once more into uncertainty, she returned to her room and saw a change in him already. Illness had stridden upon him. His face was not as she had left it, and the whole body, the splendid supple horseman, showed sickness in every line and limb its spurs and pistol and bold leather chaps, a mockery of trappings. She looked at him, and decision came back to her, clear and steady. She supported him over to her bed, and laid him on it. His head sank flat, and his loose, nerveless arms stayed as she left them. Then, among her packing-boxes, and beneath the little miniature, blue and flaxen and gold, upon its lonely wall, she undressed him. He was cold, and she covered him to the face, and arranged the pillow, and got from its box her scarlet and black Navajo blanket, and spread it over him. There was no more that she could do, and she sat down by him to wait. Among the many and many things that came into her mind was a word he said to her lightly a long while ago. "Cowpunchers do not live long enough to get old,' he had told her and now she looked at the head upon the pillow, grave and strong, but still the head of splendid, unworn youth. At the distant jingle of the wagon in the lane she was out, and had met her returning neighbors midway. They heard her with amazement, and came in haste to the bedside. Then Taylor departed to spread news of the Indians, and bring the doctor twenty-five miles away. The two women, friends, stood alone again, as they had stood in the morning when anger had been between them. Kiss me, dearie, said Mrs. Taylor. Now I will look after him, and you'll need some looking after yourself. But on returning from her cabin with what store she possessed of lint and stimulants, she encountered a rebel, independent as ever. Molly would hear no talk about saving her strength, would not be in any room but this one until the doctor should arrive. Then, perhaps, it would be time to think about resting. So together the dame and the girl rinsed the man's wound and wrapped him in clean things, and did all the little that they knew, which was, in truth, the very thing needed. Then they sat watching him toss and mutter. It was no longer upon Indians or the sorrel horse that his talk seemed to run, or anything recent, apparently, always accepting his work. This flowingly merged with whatever scene he was inventing or living again, and he wandered unendingly in that incompatible world we dream in. Through the medley of events and names, often thickly spoken, but rising at times to grotesque coherence, the listeners now and then could piece out the reference from their own knowledge. Monty, for example, continually addressed, and Molly heard her own name, but invariably as Miss Wood, nothing less respectful came out, and frequently he answered some one as ma'am. At these fragments of revelation Mrs. Taylor abstained from speech, but eyed Molly Wood with caustic reproach. As the night wore on, short lulls of silence intervened, and the watchers were deceived into hope that the fever was abating and when the Virginian sat quietly up in bed, essayed to move his bandage, and looked steadily at Mrs. Taylor, she rose quickly and went to him with a question as to how he was doing. "'Rise on your legs, you pole-cat,' said he, "'and tell them you're a liar.' The good dame gasped, then bade him lie down, and he obeyed her with that strange double understanding of the delirious, FOR EVEN WHILE SUBMITTING HE MUTTERED, LIAR, POLE CAT, AND THEN, TRAMPUS. AT THAT NAME LIGHT FLASHED ON MRS. TAYLOR, AND SHE TURNED TO MOLLY, AND THERE WAS THE GIRL STRUGGLING WITH A FIT OF MIRTH AT HIS SPEECH, BUT THE LAUGHTER WAS FAST BECOMING A PAINFUL SEIZURE. MRS. TAYLOR WALKED MOLLY UP AND DOWN, SPEAKING IMMEDIATELY TO ARREST HER ATTENTION. YOU MIGHT AS WELL KNOW IT, SHE SAID he would blame me for speaking of it, but where's the harm all this while after? And you would never hear it from his mouth. Molly, child, they say Trampas would kill him if he dared, and that's on account of you.' "'I never saw Trampas,' said Molly, fixing her eyes upon the speaker. "'No, dearie, but before a lot of men Taylors told me about it—Trampas spoke disrespectfully of you, and before them all he made Trampas say he was a liar. That is what he did when you were almost a stranger among us, and he had not started seeing so much of you. I expect Trampas is the only enemy he ever had in this country. But he would never let you know about that. "'No,' whispered Molly, "'I did not know.' "'Steve!' the sick man now cried out in poignant appeal. "'Steve!' To the women it was a name unknown, unknown as was also this deep inward tide of feeling which he could no longer conceal, being himself no longer. "'No, Steve,' he said next, and muttering followed. "'It ain't so!' he shouted, and then cunningly in a lowered voice, "'Steve, I have lied for you.'" In time Mrs. Taylor spoke some advice. You had better go to bed, child. You look about ready for the doctor yourself. Then I will wait for him, said Molly. End of chapter 27, part 1